Do you love the smell of a turp? The feel of a kidney at open nephrectomy? The sound of a Q-max over 30 mils per second? The sight of a renal stone disintegrating at the tip of your laser fibre? Or the taste of a beer at the end of a difficult cystectomy and neobladder? Then delight your five senses with So You're Gonna. So You're Gonna, the practical urology podcast for those who love urology. Welcome to another episode of So You're Gonna. This is the podcast brought to you by the team at Talking Urology, where we like to help you deal with the everyday issues that you experience in your urological practice. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting to Dr. Eugene Estella. He's an endocrinologist and based in Brisbane with over 20 years of experience of looking after men and their hormone-depleted prostate cancers. And really, probably more important than their prostate cancers is their androgen-depleted bones. So welcome, Eugene. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We were going to start with the importance of bone health. So let me just run through some simple facts to get things started. We know that serum testosterone and estrogen fall to subnormal levels during androgen deprivation therapy. These hormones are important for maintaining bone health and bone mass because they exert anti-apoptotic effects on osteoblasts and osteocytes and pro-apoptotic effects on osteoclasts. This is important because 70% of men with prostate cancer are over the age of 65 and already at risk for osteoporosis. So we know that men with non-metastatic prostate cancer receiving continuous or intermittent ADT can have significant loss of their bone mineral density and that can happen as early as the first 6 to 12 months. Men who receive continuous ADT will experience bone loss of up to 10% over two years and clinically significant annual bone mineral density decrements of 5% at the lumbar spine, 3% at the total hip, and 4% at the femoral neck. So the risk of fracture increases by at least 70% for hip and 20% for vertebrae for men on androgen deprivation therapy. And we also know that around 20% of men with prostate cancer on ADT will have a fracture, and that is compared to only 12% of men in a matched population who are not on androgen deprivation therapy. So they're the basics, Eugene. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that, or should we just get straight on to the DEXA scan? Well, uh, the main thing would be that a fracture for a man on ADT is an independent predictor of their mortality and morbidity. So if you take everyone at the end of five years, men that haven't had a fracture, 70% of them are still alive, whereas those that have had a fracture, only 50%. And though they're older men, you know, 69 and up on average, it's still very significant. Good. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty of what we need to do and how we can look after these men. Let's start with something as easy as what is a DEXA scan and what are the normal ranges? Uh, So DEXA scan is just dual energy x-ray absorptometry and it's essentially a low dose radiation source pointed at the hip or spine, sometimes wrist. And from that, you can get density scores in grams per centimetre squared or a standardised scoring called a T-score, which is measured against 30-year-olds on average, or Z-score, which is measured against age-sex matches. Okay, and what are the normal ranges for the DEXA scan? So a normal range is considered anything above minus one as a T-score, and then 
osteopenia, anywhere between minus 1.1 and minus 2.4. And then osteoporosis by WHO standards is anything minus 2.5 or lower. Okay. When should we be doing a DEXA scan in men on ADT with prostate cancer? So it's, it's a good idea to do one within the first month or two when ADT is initiated. It's worthwhile activating a DEXA scan plus or minus a lumbar thoracic spine x-ray just to look for occult crush fractures that pre-exist. Okay, and how often should we do it on these men? So if a man has a very normal bone density scan, then maybe once every two years while on the ADT, or if they have a T-score minus one or below, but they're not getting any treatment, they're just being observed, then every year. Okay, what numbers that you've mentioned there, you've mentioned minus one and minus 2.5, yep. when do we consider treatment in men that have just commenced ADT. So we're not yet talking about, you know, fractures in castration-resistant prostate cancer, just your run-of-the-mill man starting ADT for prostate cancer. Who do we need to treat? Anyone that's minus 2.5 or lower. And then depending on the person and other risks, if they're in the minus 1 to minus 2.4 group and they have multiple other risk factors or particularly they're older, then a FRAX calculator will certainly pick out those that'll get the most benefit. All right, what is that? You've mentioned they're a fracture risk assessment tool. How are they adding to the DEXA scan? Uh, so they take into consideration the big factors. So age is number one for a fracture risk. Uh, like the difference between a man fracturing at 60 versus 75 is massive. It's exponential. So it'll take into consideration age, that it's a secondary osteoporosis, other factors like uh, alcohol, smoking, steroid exposure, and it'll factor in if they've had a previous fracture, family history fracture, and what their bone density is. And together, give a really good idea whether they're going to benefit from getting bone or osteoporotic treatment. Okay, so let's go through those treatments then. We've got to keep it simple. Remember, we're just urologists. Yep. What are the key steps in bone health management? Let's just start with, say, the lifestyle modifications. What advice do you give these men? The main lifestyle modifications are things they take in. So toxins, smoking, alcohol, both make a difference reducing those, cutting out the smoking altogether. And then general exercise. Any exercise is good, will reduce your risk of falling and fracture. And then if they're keen and able, then uh, some resistance training will increase their bone density potentially a couple of percent. So it depends if they're, and generally makes them feel better because they also have the other low testosterone symptoms of fatigue and decreased motivation, muscle loss. So they're the lifestyle factors. Great. And we've got a great podcast coming up on the benefits of exercise on many with ADT as well. So we can stay tuned for that. You've mentioned the, the simple factors then. How about sort of some early, easy therapeutics such as calcium and vitamin D? Do you recommend these? Uh, yeah, they're really useful when you talk about other pharmacology. On their own, they have a mild effect. Certainly if, if people are deficient in vitamin D, that needs to be replaced before they used any other drugs to prevent hypocalcemia. But if vitamin D levels checked and it's less than 50 or 60, then person needs loading up with even 4,000 units a day for a few months. And then background dosing around 1,000 units a day to keep make sure levels are adequate of vitamin D. 
and then calcium around 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Usually can be a little bit more in older men over 70, but generally low doses of both are worthwhile. Okay, so if someone's vitamin D is above 50, you wouldn't recommend it? Because admittedly, I've sort of been giving it to everybody, but are you telling me I'm over-treating the vitamin D? Well, you can't. It's very difficult to overdose on vitamin D, and it will cover particularly winter or seasonal variation. And so often these men are getting into a stage of life and the treatment itself is kind of a catabolic thing. They're likely to become vitamin D deficient in time. So I don't think it's a bad idea at all to wholesale give everyone some and then certainly load up vitamin D for a few months in those that are low. Okay, good. All right, so I touched on earlier and I sort of didn't let you finish the treatments that are available beyond these simple measures. So let's start with men with osteopenia or osteoporosis just starting ADT. If you're very concerned, what levels would you consider the pharmacologic agents of bisphosphonates or other agents? So give us a number and then what you would do. So to give you an idea, uh, if you had in a FRAX calculator, a man who was uh, 74, they had a bone density scan, their T-score is minus 1.5, but otherwise they're healthy, clean living, and then they just have testosterone deficiency. Their actual risk of breaking something in the next, over that 10 year period, anything, is around 20%, and fracturing a hip, about five, 6%. So even though their bone density is not osteoporotic and they haven't broken anything, they're one of the men that would really benefit from getting preemptive preventative pharmacological treatment. Otherwise, say if you had a 65 year old man with the same parameters, they wouldn't. They're about four or five times less likely to break something. So they'd, a 65 year old man would have to have near osteoporosis, like a T-score of minus two and a half. Okay, because I know a lot of these pharma companies put a lot of time and money into doing these trials to show that they would be primary preventative. But as we know, they've all essentially been negative and now we're really just looking at men with uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer and where the absolute indications are for prevention. But that's really in all comers. So we're really talking about a different group of patients, aren't we? It's important to know that these are osteopenic or osteoporotic patients who are going to benefit at this stage. The other risk factors apart from the bone density itself helped give you an idea of what their bone strength is like. So anyone on glucocorticoid, doesn't matter what their bone density says, uh, they're going to have weaker bones than the average, than the average person because the bone density, it's the best thing that we have. The ideal would be to take a bone out and try and break it, but you can't do that. So we use the bone density, but those other factors have to be considered for each individual when you're getting ready to start a treatment. Sure. And what treatment would you consider first line in these men? Simply having osteoporosis or osteopenia being a higher risk, then your choices are bisphosphonates, whether it be zoledronic acid, which is probably the preference for mine, because it's once a year, intravenous, it's done. The company helped supply someone to give it. There's no real compliance issues, which you will get into trouble with oral bisphosphonates. People just don't take them or just forget to take them once a week or once a month. And then the other one is Proli or Denosumab. So it's once every six months, subcutaneous injection, very easy, low side effect profile, and uh, renal function, you don't have to uh, worry about it too much. Although if you are vitamin D deficient, then you can still end up with hypocalcemia. And then if people have developed bony mets or their occult bony mets, then it certainly would be the favorable agent over zoledronic acid. 
Okay, so you prefer the denosumab in men with the bony metastatic disease? Yeah, there are studies going out. Both of them are effective, but it appears that the denosumab will prevent bony morbidity and mortality endpoints for three, four months longer than zoledronic acid will. Okay. Well, there we go. We have a point of difference. Let's just quickly move on to a different category of men. Now, these are all comers with bone metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. Now, these are the men where I think as urologists or clinicians treating prostate cancer, we do probably one of our worst performing areas in that we under-treat these men. So all these men, from what I understand, should be on some sort of bone-protecting agent. Can you elaborate on that? Is that that the truth? Am I making that up? Well, it's clear authority PBS listing. It's more oncology treatment than osteoporotic treatment. But they're getting like 120 milligram double-dose denosumab every month okay so we're talking very different doses here as well yeah 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 big doses so there's similar treatment that someone with breast cancer or myeloma would get they're often a sicker group and they're a riskier group for hypocalcemia and side effects from the drugs they're the risk group you know it's one in a hundred one in fifty get the osteonecrosis and a good percentage of them probably one in five get significant hypocalcemia they're the group that you really need to make sure people have optimal vitamin d levels calcium replacement and watch the kidney function if they're on a cluster or zoledronic acid okay that is fantastic advice let's get down to the pure practicalities for a moment eugene let's just run through the different agents we've gone through zoledronic acid what dose are we giving and how often just to summarize so osteoporosis only it's weird but it's a slightly different dose it's a five milligram dose once a year denosumab 60 milligram once every six months actinel or residronate can be 35 milligrams once a week so there pretty much covers just about everyone. Sure. And how about when we get into the, the more advanced cancers? What doses are we giving then and how often? Yeah, the zoledronic acid then becomes four milligram dose, which is one milligram difference, but that's on the authority drugs. A dose every month and denosumab 120 every month. Okay. And we're really bashing through the key points. The initial screening, what do we need to do before we start men on these agents? Just doing a FRAX, you know, the Sheffield from the UK, you can get it on the internet for free. The FRAX calculator, just doing it out once at the beginning with a bone density, plus or minus the x-ray of the spine, and then basic bloods of the ELFT, vitamin D, parathyroid hormone. You can do thyroid function tests as well but that's about all mainly vitamin d calcium and renal function great and how do we screen for osteonecrosis of the jaw do we need to send them to a dentist yeah it's pretty uncommon it's worthwhile everyone probably at the very beginning just if they haven't had a dental check within the last year just having a dental check initially uh, so that if there's something that's significant that needs to be done they can get it done before they start a treatment. Uh, although I'm saying that if it's just for osteoporosis, the, the chances is, uh, of getting osteonecrosis is like one in 10,000. It's very low. It's only the people that are getting it every month in big doses that uh, run up that high risk of 1 in 100 to 1 in 50. Well, that's good to know. And if you had to pick one or two of the key side effects or monitoring points that we need to make with patients on these drugs? So uh, the main ones would be, particularly on a cluster, doing an ELFT, which just covers calcium, creatinine, and a vitamin D, 
And then on denosumab, again, it's really just the same, just an ELFT to see that their calcium is okay. Because if people are going to get into hospitalized side effect trouble, it'll be through renal shutdown and severe hypocalcemia with you know tetany or seizures. Good. And how does osteonecrosis of the jaw actually present? What will the patient come in and tell you? It's not as brutal as uh, internet photos will uh, portray with half the jaw missing. I think most people present before that happens, but the only cases I've seen of it, essentially they can feel with their tongue, say where wisdom teeth used to be. So most commonly at the very back and just feel like uh, there's a raw area, not painful necessarily. And then when you look at it with a torch, it's just a like a one centimetre bare area that is a little bit yellowy. And then uh, the treatment that the people I've known that, that have had it, they've had to stop the bone drugs. And then the dentist has just debrided the dead tissue and two out of three of them, it healed up. It took a year, but it healed up. Uh, and then one just had ongoing, has ongoing trouble that's just kind of festering. It's not dissolving their jaw but it just hasn't healed up yet you've really tried to raise the bar here for urologists now they've got to look in patients mouths as well but i think they're up to it eugene i have great confidence in them (laughs) the patient will feel it yeah you've been wonderful i reckon we're getting close to the end here a couple of things to finish there what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes you see urologists make when they're considering the bone health of their men with prostate cancer i don't think they make mistakes it's really just with most people like initiating something, just taking that point to the side. Most urologists wouldn't have a FRAX calculator on their laptop or on their screen. I think you can be sure of that, Eugene. (laughs) That's all I would do is just on the computer, get the link for the FRAX calculator. And it's so simple to use. You click a couple of buttons with the person there, and then it spits out a number for you to look at. Absolutely. So we can put that in the show notes. We'll put the, the link to that calculator. And if urologists don't want to do this themselves, obviously they need to get them along to their colleagues such as you to, to take care of this side of things for them. So if you wanted to tell urologists one thing that you know they can improve the management of their bone health of their patients tomorrow, so assuming they have done the calculator, what is one thing that we should be telling our patients, warning our patients or getting them to do? If you could choose one of all those myriad of options you've presented so far? Well, if they've done the fracture calculator, they could easily ask the patient to see their local doctor to say they've got high risk of osteoporosis, can you treat their bones? Because a lot of general practitioners do it all the time. For everyone else, that's an easy thing to do. Just alert their main doctor to look at it and treat it, or you can even ask the patient to do that, and then they can follow that up themselves. Wonderful. Well, Eugene, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I think the bone health is incredibly important and something that we're becoming more aware of, and certainly with the development of men's health clinics and the increasing role of endocrinologists in the chronic management of these patients who are living for a long time on their multitude of treatments for advanced prostate cancer. So thank you very much for chatting to us today, and I look forward to uh, chatting to you again soon in the near future, hopefully, about all things urology. All right. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks for having me. So that's it for today, folks. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion around bone health. We also hope that you've learned something new and will join us again next time. Take care and remember to send all feedback to feedback at talkingurology.com.au. You can subscribe through Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and check out the website at talkingurology.com.au. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Urology to get all the latest news and notifications of past and upcoming podcasts. 
You've been listening to Joseph Iskew and Eugene Estella, produced by Joseph Iskew and Cara Webb. And a special thanks to our sponsor of this episode, Abvi. So You're Gonna, the practical urology podcast for those who love urology. Proudly brought to you by Abvi. This podcast was sponsored by Abvi Proprietary Limited, which has no control over audio content. The content is entirely independent and based on published studies and experts' opinion. The views within the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Abvi. Abvi does not endorse the use of unregistered products or products outside their registered indications. Please refer to the Australian Product Information for licensed instructions.